1: Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka.
0: And I'm Mark Thiessen.
1: Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what good news do you have for us today?
0: I have no good news, Danny. The, uh, <laughs> exactly. the, we, are, we are discussing uh, the collapse of trust in our institution. We are experiencing a crisis of trust. There is new polling out from Gallup, which has been tracking these numbers since the 1970s. Um, And collapse in trust in the federal government, big business, the media, education, science and medicine, technology, religious institutions, law enforcement, all of these institutions, you name it. Uh, is collapsing. They they track Gallup tracks sixteen institutions over and over the past decade. Eleven of those institutions have recorded their lowest ever popular support in the last couple of years. The only institutions that have held steady and have enjoy majority confidence are the military and small business. Every other institution has absolutely collapsed. Uh, Jerry Baker of the Wall Street Journal has written a fantastic essay in the Wall Street Journal based on his new book about this, diagnosing the problem, explaining to us why uh, why this collapse is happening, and we've got him on the pod today.
1: Exactly. So a lot of people, I think, paid attention to also the Pew poll that came out last week, and I'm not going to read everybody the litany of it, but fewer than two in 10 Americans say they trust the government in Washington to do what is right just about always or even most of the time now you know again i think um, i think skepticism about government is is a is an american trait right you yes. know this is one of the reasons why we have a, demo- a representative democracy right you want to be able to throw the bums out every 4 years every 2 years every 6 years uh, but it, you know, I think it, it. I think the problem is actually deeper than the one that, that Pew and Gallup lay bare. It is not simply that Americans don't trust what used to be the pillars of our society and our community—not simply government, but local government. But they don't trust their neighbors anymore. Okay, they don't trust their hometown newspaper anymore. They don't trust the the, the man or woman who they're used to seeing on the news. And um, it, it, you know, this is so corrosive we didn't use this word during the podcast but it is actually the one that kept coming to mind it's so atomizing you know we are increasingly alone you know one of the things that I love about Americans is you know we all get together and you know believe we do the right thing we uh, you know we believe in the future we believe in the rewards and the fruits of hard work we believe in 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 faith family and community. No, we're not, we're not. We're not those people anymore.
0: Well, you know, but we still want to be. So, a couple of weeks ago, we had my my Washington Post colleague Alyssa Rosenberg on the podcast with me because we had done a joint essay in the Washington Post. Alyssa is a about as liberal as you could possibly be, pro choice liberal. I'm a pro life conservative, and we did an essay on what we agreed on on family policy and how we could learn to put aside our differences on abortion and come together. And the response to that to that essay that we've been getting is is so heartening and it wasn't even so much the substance of it though i think the substance is important but the the existence of the exercise the fact that two of us who disagree so much decided to come together trust each other work together reach across the aisle and try to find some common ground and i think there's a hunger for that in america uh for people to do that um, and it was just you know, it, it, What's sad is that it was so unusual <laughs> what Alyssa and I did with that with that piece. But it, but it was uh, I think I think there's a hunger for that in America if someone there, can come out is,
1: and tap. There is Mark, but but a lot of it is performative. You know, um, uh, the the bottom line is that um, yes, of course, you um, and Alyssa, two members of an elite class of columnists for what the, the Washington Post got together. You beat the trend, but. Bottom line is that even in households, you know, Americans used to know a lot of people who voted differently from them. At some point in not too far away ago podcast, we discussed the fact that that people don't actually, Democrats don't actually know Republicans. They're able to objectify them, to dehumanize them uh, because they don't actually know them. And even that is even that is just something that is so intensely depressing. But I mean, you know, we we all do have friends who are Democrats. But, you know, look at our core group. We're all Republicans.
0: Yeah, I mean, that is true. And one of the things we talk about with Jerry is the fact that, uh, you know, numbers show that 35 million Americans have moved many of them from blue states to red states or from red states to blue states uh, they're mo- they're moving uh, that's that's almost you know one in ten yeah. Americans voting with moving. their feet um, and some of them are just moving because there's economic opportunity, but some of them are moving because they just don't want to be around those people anymore. <laughs> and they don't want their and and their policies. They don't feel they're being listened to in their states. And and so they're moving to places where they will have better policies. But the result is we're living in ideological silos. We don't know people, uh, as you say, who, who disagree with each other. But also there's the, there's a broader trend. Let's not let's not put this blame all entirely on. Uh, on people, uh, individuals, let's talk about the, the institutions, because the institutions have done this to themselves. Jerry does a very good job uh, in, his, in his book, in his essay, of just l- doing the litany of failure. And they're bipartisan, by the way. You've got the failure to find WMD, uh, in Iraq, which uh, which you know caused a lot of lack of trust in in our political leaders. Then you got the the Russia collusion conspiracy theory, uh, where when Trump was elected, which turned out to be nothing more than a conspiracy theory. You got Trump, uh, you know, with his uh, stolen election claims in 2020. You've got the COVID pandemic, where everyone told us we had to lock down and keep kids out of schools, and all of a sudden it turned out that that wasn't the case. We got so much bad information. What you're trying to uh, say from- is,
1: what you're trying to say is, we may not trust them, but they've earned it.
0: Exactly, yes. So I mean, all these institutions, our public health institutions, our political leaders on both sides of the aisle, the news media, uh, they've all earned this, they've, they've done this. And so it's not surprising that people don't trust each other. And then what happens is they go for alternate sources of information because uh, they don't trust the media. But then we're talking about, you know, people who have their own sets of facts. Right. Everybody I know thinks the election was stolen. So why, should we, it must've been stolen. Because the Washington Post so? and the New York Times told me it wasn't, so I don't trust them. And I trust, you know, I trust my local radio talk show host a lot more than them or Donald Trump. So, you know, it becomes a a vicious cycle. I
1: I agree with you. I want to, before we go to the interview with Jerry, in which we talk a lot about this, I want to inject one more current events note that I think is really important to this collapse, and that is the collapse of decorum. Now, we we haven't talked about the uh, poor, you know, poor Senator John Fetterman, who, you know, should be a man who is recovering and doing occupational therapy and spending more time with his family as opposed to feeling like the thing that needs to liberate him is that he really needs to wear shorts and uh, a sweatshirt to the Senate. Now, you know, who gives a damn? You know, go there in your underwear if you want. Okay, it's about leadership. I give a damn. Well, no, but let me finish. Hang on a second. You know, objectively speaking, of course, the Senate is about governance. You can vote and govern theoretically as well in a sweatshirt as you can in a suit jacket. That's not the issue here. The issue here is that it is in – this is sort of uh, – Fetterman is the cherry on top of the Sunday of the loss of decorum in our country. It is – Mark, when I wrote a piece about how I might have to vote for Donald Trump in the Washington Post, because I believed in the institutions that uh, needed to be preserved from what the Democrats were threatening, there were more than 23,000 comments. And let me tell you something – Once you call somebody the things that people consistently called me in those comments, you can't step back, right? You cannot call, sorry, everybody, you know, warning. You cannot call somebody a fucking scumbag who is destroying our nation and then turn around the next day and go, Hey, I really want to talk to you about what you think about this. Uh, This, this collapse in the ability to be able to disagree politely Right. We're seeing this now in my native Australia where they're voting on a an indigenous, quote unquote, voice, sort of a parallel government structure for uh, for Aboriginal First Nation people there. And if you want to vote no, and I am voting no, if you want to vote no, the answer is not, oh, yes, well, we do have a legitimate disagreement about whether this is a good choice for Australia. It is you are a racist and a white supremacist. And that's the only reason you vote no. You can't talk to somebody who calls you that so you know we go from the sweatshirt um, which is just you know a, a little peek at the problem and you get down to that if you are willing to call somebody a white supremacist because you disagree with them about politics, you're it's done you can't you can't find yeah. common ground. you can't be you and Alyssa.
0: I agree with that. I I think that the idea that you know that someone is going to go into the greatest deliberative body on the face of the earth uh so even even now it, despite all the uh, everything that's happened and can't put on a suit and tie to do that is emblematic of everything that's wrong with our institutions. Like, you know, our institu- people don't trust our institutions. So let's dumb them down just a little bit further. And yeah, you're right. It doesn't matter in in a sense, but it does because the decorum matters and it's a, it's a it's a sign of disrespect for the institution, right? You know, the, the problem we have in America is not that people respect the Senate too much and we ought to, uh, we ought to like, you know, chip away at that a little bit more. It's that they don't respect the Senate enough. They don't respect the institution enough. And so let's not dumb it down uh, a little bit more. It's a symptom, not the cause and yeah, very visual but, and
1: evocative yeah. so our interview Jerry Baker we've had him on before is the editor at large of the Wall Street Journal he's also the host of the Wall Street Journal at large with Jerry Baker on Fox Business and the weekly Wall Street Journal opinion podcast free expression he's been with the journal he's been with Dow Jones he was the uh, he's been with the financial times the times of london and the bbc most importantly, he is the author of a new book called American Breakdown, Why We No Longer Trust Our Leaders and Institutions and How We Can Rebuild Confidence.
2: Here's our interview. Well, Jerry, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you both. Thanks for having me again. I enjoy listening to your podcast and I enjoy even more talking on it. <laughs> oh, great. Well, we're, we're thrilled to have you.
0: And particularly because you had a fascinating article in the Wall Street Journal, which is, I understand is coming out as a book, talking about the collapse of trust in our institutions. We have a crisis of trust in our institutions. First of all, just describe this crisis of trust that we're experiencing. I think a lot of people feel it, but you've actually documented it.
2: Yeah, Mark. Well, thank you very much. Indeed, the book was uh, just published uh, just a week or so ago, and uh, thank you for noticing the article in the journal. Yeah, the um, the, the the basic thrust of the book. I tell you, what, actually, I started doing this book. I've lived in this country for 25, almost 30 years. Came here in the 1990s um, when America was, let's you know, right at the peak, the pinnacle of its. Power, post Cold War, everything, you know, every, the end of history, we were all going to be like, you know, we're going to be liberal Democrats and, uh, you know, be one version or another of American democracy. And, you know, I, it was great. I thought it was, uh, you know, the, I agreed with most of that. Uh, and then over that since as a journalist here, I worked for the Financial Times and ultimately for the Wall Street Journal, you know, I, I got a sort of close hand look at um, the decline, shall we say, the decline from that pinnacle. Um, and I started, I wanted to write a book which would sort of Try to analyze this and anatomize this, figure out what had gone wrong, what's taken us from a situation 30 years ago where again, America was the kind of acme of human achievement and, and, and success to this position we're in today. And as I looked at it in detail, what I looked at it struck me that the institutions that as a journalist I'd covered and and that as a newspaper The Wall Street Journal covered I started to look more closely at what had happened and the way in which people uh, related to those institutions and then I went away and looked up a lot of data there's a tremendous amount of polling data survey data Gallup does a poll all the time uh, every year Pew does too uh, which which measures the level of public trust in the major institutions in America and this is where I really sort of got the idea for the book it was and it is astonishing because because they've been doing this for about 50 years. Gallup have been measuring this since the 1970s. 50 in the last 10 years or so, 15 or 16 major institutions, the government, the federal government, the judiciary, um, big business, the media, uh, universities, uh, education generally, um, various other various other institutions, and in every single one, with the exception of two, which we can talk about. Trust, public trust in those institutions has not only declined, it's collapsed in almost all of them. It's come down from, you know, very high levels of trust in the 80s, 90s in particular, down to really, I mean, shockingly low levels of trust today. But the perfect example, I'm ashamed to say, and you won't be surprised to hear, uh, is the media, the media back in the 1980s. Um, people had a level of trust. It was the post Watergate glow that people had a level of trust in news organizations up in the 70, 70 plus percent range. More than three quarters of Americans said they trusted the news. Today, that number is down at about 15%. It's the same, but it's a, that's the most extreme example. But it's the same with big business, with the federal government, with education, higher education, with technology companies, with the technology that we use, with public health, with science and medicine. All of these key institutions that make up Obviously, the, the, you know, the, the, the civic and political and cultural leadership of the country, people don't trust them anymore. They've, they've, they've gone from being trusted to untrusted in the space of a generation. And that's what I look at it. And by the way, one other thing, very alarmingly too, is that Americans don't trust each other anymore. Again, 30 years ago, Americans, generally speaking, trusted each other to tell the truth, to do the right thing, to look out for, you know, to, to, to do to do good for, for the country. They don't trust each other anymore to do that. They, they have very low levels of trust in each other. So I wanted to look at this in detail, figure out what had gone wrong with all of these institutions and try to draw out some general conclusions about what had happened that leaves us in this really, really, I think, perilous situation where the vast majority of the American people do not trust the major institutions and the leadership of the country.
1: So you've delivered the bad news. I don't think it's going to come as a surprise to It's certainly not surprising to us. I don't think it'll be a surprise to our listeners. I think everybody not simply um, not simply knows this factually, but feels it instinctively as well. What's the
2: answer? Why? <laughs> so yeah, good question. Um, you'll have to read the book. No, you have, have to buy and read the books to find out. But no, the answer is so. First of all, I mean, like um, the, again, all of these institutions have seen catastrophic levels declines in levels of trust and you know like um like Tolstoy's uh, unhappy families they're all um, they're all untrusted in their own way they all have particular reasons why people have come not to trust them the government I think the federal government I think that's a partly a record of failure over the last 20 years whether in whether domestically relatively weak economic growth uh in internationally the sense that you know we can disagree about this, but you know wars that have not gone well, foreign policy that's uh, that's that that's left America weaker um, big business, there have been scandals that have undermined uh, trust in big business the global financial crisis played a big role in that. All of these institutions have their own particular reasons, but I think there are some common factors that explain this broad uh, across the board level of uh, decline in levels of trust and I think you know i think I think there are things like i think I think it is to do with. Um, obviously partisanship has become such a huge phenomenon, polarization. And you find with a lot of these institutions that there's polarized levels of distrust. And the medical establishment is a very good example of science. Uh, in the last five years, particularly post COVID, you know, Republicans tend to have be very distrustful now of medical science, uh, whereas Democrats still have relatively high levels of trust. So polarization. But what's interesting, um, Mark and Danny is that, that even, even if, you know, so it's not just that, Democrats don't trust the federal government when the Republicans are in charge, or Republicans don't trust the federal government when Democrats are in charge. Both of them, I mean, they, they have higher levels of trust when their party's in charge, but both parties record much lower levels of trust in their uh, government than they did. 30 40 years ago. So so again I think there's been I think there's individual reasons but I think I think one is po- uh, what polarization has been a huge factor obviously. Secondly I do think the rise of economic inequality. I think a country that has seen the kind of inequality that has arisen in the United States in the last 30 years is intrinsically um if you like vociparous. it's creating um tensions it's creating um uh, gaps between gaps in um in 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 in, essentially in, in, in the way in which people re- re- relate to each other. Review each other, and I think it does create mistrust. What interesting! I, I quite a lot of interesting polling data. You know, in the past, Americans broadly tolerated the inequalities we had in the past because because they thought it was justified, it was deserved. If you made a lot of money in America, it was the American dream. You deserved it. You worked hard. You had talent. You, you know, you got educated. You or you made a business. You built a business. You went and you you know you were successful. You deserved it. Now, polling suggests people do not see um, that the do not do not have the same level of trust. In the system itself, they think the system is rigged. And by the way, if you look at, um, you know, this came out, this this has come out in in the context of the discussion about things like affirmative action uh, in in American colleges in the last six months. If you look at the, the... the 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 social mobility today of uh, Americans it is way down. The people who go to the top universities in this country, the the Ivy League and the top twenty or thirty universities, tend to come from a very very narrow economic class. It's narrower and narrower economic class, and that's seen as the opportunity to uh, to to achieve great success. So I think that the sense of injustice of inequality is very profound. But I think the most important reason, um, and you neither of you will be surprised to hear this, and I've written uh, about this a lot, is this. Is the fact that most of these institutions have been captured by a an ideological elite, a sort of a, a progress, they call themselves progressive, an ideological elite which actually doesn't really believe in the values that actually made America great, made America the country that it is, and actually aren't the values that most Americans actually espouse. And we've seen this, particularly in the last few years. But it's true whether it's big business, whether it's the media, whether it's colleges, whether it's the permanent government whether it's science and technology, this um this new establishment, if you like, which emerged uh you know, in the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties, but particularly after the end of the Cold War, committed to a set of values that are actually fundamentally not just un-American, but actually anti American. They actually believe and that, that I'm not I'm not sort of putting words I'm not I'm not I'm not uh I'm not being um, uh, being unkind to them there. They actually, they don't really believe in that America, the traditional American way is the right way. And I think it's that more than anything, people see that these institutions have just become so far detached from the values and the ideals that they hold that means very understandably that they don't trust them anymore. So talk a little bit about the vicious cycle that we seem to be in. So you've had this collapse of institutions
0: and trust in institutions. And then in 2016, you had this populist uprising of the people who've, who've sort of been on the losing end of this uh, rising inequality and don't, who didn't trust the institutions. And so they elected this guy, Donald Trump to go in like a bull in the China shop into, uh, you know, start breaking, breaking the China, uh, on their behalf. And the elites responded by, the Russia collusion conspiracy theory to you know the 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 multiple you know I think 91 indictments were uh, up to now with Trump many of them deserved you know um, but there seems to be this vicious cycle where the people who are on the losing end have risen up to say we we demand to be heard we demand to be addressed and the elites have responded by by trying to tamp them down and destroy their their movement. And the distrust gets gets worse and worse. Is that a fair description of what's happening in our politics right now? Yeah, I think it is,
2: Mark. I think I think it's a good point. And let let me say this because you and I both know, and I don't think either of you are either. I'm no fan of Donald Trump, so. um And I exactly. think that. Um, but I tell you what, I think I, th- I think Donald Trump's election in 2016. Uh, it's largely explicable by this by this sense of alienation and this lack of trust that people have in the major institutions. Trump came along because it was a bipartisan thing. let's be honest again, you know a lot of Republicans were very unhappy with what Republicans in Congress had done or what Republican administrations had done. It was a bipartisan thing, a sense that nobody out there is listening to us. nobody out there you know tr- uh, you know shares our values, shares our ideals. Then along comes this bull in a China shop as you describe him, who says things that you know, a lot of Americans believe and have been told that they're not really kind of allowed to believe, whether it's about immigration um, or about um, America's role in the world or about um, cultural issues, about what's happening, about this extraordinary pace of cultural change that we're seeing in America. And they embrace him and they say, yeah, okay, and I think that's why he gets elected. Now, I think you're right, Mark. I think then you know, the establishment pushes back, um, you know, com- comes up with the, the, the Russia story, um, but also pushes back in a thousand different ways. I do think, you know, the permanent government's, when Trump was in power. And again, I don't admire everything Trump did. And I certainly don't admire everything Trump said. But I don't think there's any question that through his four years in power, whether it was from intelligence agencies, from um, law enforcement from the bureaucracy uh, in in Washington, there was there was active undermining of everything he was doing, whether it was you know slow rolling what he was trying to do, or whether it was constantly leaking to the press supposedly outrageous things that he was doing. So there was this pushback. All that said, and so that further you know further you're absolutely right, further kind of contributes to this cycle of distrust. All that said, Trump himself contributed to it. I mean, one of the you know I, I don't think there's you know I think you know one of the things uh, I say in the book is that you know we have when you don't trust is so essential right we haven't talked about this trust trust in in your institutions is so trust in everything is so essential in order to be able for a society to be able to succeed you can't for a democracy to succeed you cannot you cannot have a situation where people don't trust what their leaders are doing what their government is doing and you know the perfect the most extreme example of this distrust is that we have a situation today where i think it's right i think the vast majority of Republicans, and therefore almost half of the country, doesn't believe the last election was fairly decided. It believes it was. It believes the last election was stolen. It, that, that's 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 again that's the ultimate expression of distrust when you don't believe that the person who holds office now in a democratically elected system was democratically elected. I don't share that view. I don't, you know, I, I mean, I think there were lots of question marks that are reasonable to raise about the conduct of the 2020 election, but I do not believe the election was stolen. But and trust and so Trump, I think. You know, has contributed to that trust, has fed that mistrust, uh, and again, and in that sense, is also contributing to this to this to this vicious cycle. So, Jerry,
0: you know, in this vicious cycle, the institution you point out that has lost the greatest amount of trust is the institution that you and I both work in, which is the newspapers. Went from in 1979, 51% uh, trust to just 18% today. And it seems, again, like this vicious cycle is taking place where so, you know, the, the media covered this Russia collusion conspiracy theory and presented it like like truth. And then it was turned out to be nothing more than a conspiracy theory. And then, uh, you know, like the boy who cried wolf, they, to- they said so many things about Trump that were wrong, that when Trump actually comes out and lies and says the election is stolen, nobody believes him because we don't have a neutral arbiter of truth anymore that people yeah. trust. And so it's not surprising that so many Republicans believe the election is stolen because they've been lied to so many times. We'll never get to the point where we had like we had with Walter Cronkite was the most trusted man in America. I don't think we'll ever get that. But how does the media dig itself out of this hole? And do they even recognize that they've created this
2: hole for themselves? And why? Well, I I don't think they I don't think they really do recognize. I mean, there's still this. I mean, I'm struck still by the way in which the media cover Trump in particular, many of them. Um, you know, as though he is this sort of monster that kind of came out of nowhere, without realising their own role uh, in having basically created the conditions in which he could arise. They continue to do. I don't see any signs of self awareness on the part of the media. Most of the media, I should ex- ex- obviously except my own uh, organisation, the Wall Street Journal, which I think on the well, was very largely sticks to. Um, uh, you know, we have a conservative editorial page, obviously, but the news pages continue to you know work very hard to be objective. Look, I think, and by the way, you now hear you hear all this talk in the media, but but they even reject the idea of objectivity. They don't even think they yes. need to be objective anymore. It's all about moral clarity. Um, so yeah, so they're in a very, very, very deep hole. I think, and I think it's exacerbated by uh, by the commercial conditions that they find themselves in. I don't have any doubt that you know, as as advertising fell away as a major source of revenue for newspapers, particularly, uh, but obviously for television too, um, but newspapers. Sought to replace that. Certainly, the big newspapers like the New York Times, the Washington Post, sought to replace that revenue, uh, that advertising revenue, with subscriber revenue. And when you have subscribers, you're selling directly, you're selling a product, particular product, directly to a group of people who have a particular reason that you, you want to give them a particular reason to buy that product. Whereas in the past, advertising was just, you know, you were funded by advertising, which kind of everybody saw, and it didn't really require a particular viewpoint. Subscribers really require a viewpoint. They want, they want, if they subscribe to the New York Times, you know, the New York Times has tapped into the five, seven, eight million people in America who want a daily dose of, you know, progressive, liberal, left, anti-Trump uh, journalism. That's, you know, and they do that. And that, that's, that's the commercial imperative that's driving it. So I think not only is it a cultural thing where well, these newspapers have largely been taken over by this sort of new generation of highly ideological, highly motivated, um, you know, Ivy League educated people who want to, you know, tell us how we should live our lives, it's also a commercial thing, which is the commercial model is driving it. So, so no, I'm not very optimistic that that will change. I think, you know, if, if it gives, if I have any optimism at all on this, and I do, it's that there are, in some respects, we have been here before, right? I mean, the idea of newspapers or a news media that is that strives to be completely objective is a relatively new thing. It's within the last certainly in the last fifty, maybe the last century, in the sort of in the middle of the twentieth century it really grew up. In the nineteenth century, America had these highly partisan news newspapers, news organizations that, you know, you can still see it in some of the, you know, the names of the papers, the Democrat Gazette or the, you know, the the Republican Journal or whatever you see in, in places across the country. So we had that before. We had a highly and you go back, and I did, I look at some of the newspaper coverage, you know, of the 1800 presidential election or of the, um, uh, you know, of some of those early debates around that time. It was extraordinarily partisan, and there were, you know, vicious attacks on, uh, on candidates from each side and very reminiscent of the way that you see with Donald Trump today. What happened, I think, in the, you know, late uh, – the Wall Street Journal actually began – I think began this in the late 19th century. People decided they needed news they could trust. People had to have news that they could trust. They couldn't just any longer – rely on a partisan take for what was going on in the world for all kinds of reasons. They wanted to have news that they could trust. And so they started to turn towards news organizations that promised them not hyper partisan news, but something that was going to be an, at least an attempt to strive towards giving them the, the, the facts of what was actually going on. So and I think so. there's a chance that this could be a cyclical thing. We might turn again and there will be a demand at some point for people to say, you know what, I just can't I just can't take any more of this, whether it's from the left or the right. Just this constant I don't want to have the news we have today largely confirms people's biases and prejudices. Right? It's not really there to tell to challenge people or to tell people facts that they don't want to hear. It's to tell people facts that they actually would confirm what they already think they believe. So I think that will. I think there's a chance that will change as people start to see, especially as the kind of as it, as it resonates through culture and politics in the way that it is and makes our politics so contributes to making our politics so toxic and so partisan and so 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 destructive i think there will be change but i don't honestly see it happening anytime soon yeah
1: i mean that's the problem isn't it i mean i think part of the challenge is that technology has enabled us to curate our own reality right so i'm willing to bet and i haven't seen polling on this but i'm willing to bet Mm -hmm. that people view their news source as reliable In other words, people who read the New York Times think it is reliable objective news, right? Honest newspapering. People who read, you know, God knows what, people who watch different channels, uh, Newsmax, probably think to themselves, right, you know, this is actually the objective news I've been looking for. This is the problem. It's not that everybody realizes that, uh, it, it it is that everybody's living in their own echo chamber. Charles Murray wrote this this wonderful book um, called "Coming Apart" uh, about this phenomenon that you know rich people no longer know poor people, Democrats no longer know Republicans. I wonder to myself, though, you have this this optimism which I, I am desperate for. Um, Mark says the cure is just leadership. You know, Ronald Reagan will appear from the grave and uh, lead us out of this morass, if only we're gonna or not or, or not <laughs> or not, but. <laughs>
2: Either, either Ronald Reagan will lead us from the grave, will come from the grave, or Vivek Ramaswamy will emerge to uh, unite. Oh this yes, because
1: in it'll India. be one of one of those two. Um, certainly, <clears throat> one of those two is the solution to our problem. But I mean, the, hmm. the the question, the question for me is is how pervasive it is. You know, our tendency is to talk about, um, you know, the media, uh, about trusting government, about the stolen election. Hmm. But you talked about this as well. Is People, for example, who sup at the government trough, right? We have fifty percent of Americans now, Nick Eberstadt's written really good work on this. Fifty percent of Americans who are getting some form of government assistance. And yet people who get government assistance believe that only the privileged and entitled get government assistance. So I mean it's even yeah. a divide at that level. I, I, is that, does that come down to this growing perception of income inequality of two Americas? Where does it come from?
2: It's partly that. And I think you're absolutely right, by the way, Danny, that people do trust institutions that, that reflect their own views. And people reflect their own views. The most startling example of that, I think, we saw you, that I saw recently it was a poll, I think in the last month, that asked people, asked Donald Trump supporters whether they trusted him compared with members of their family their friends, the leaders of their religious institution, they trusted Donald Trump more than all of those, all of the other people that they asked about. All of those, you know, your personal friends, members of your family, they trusted Donald Trump. Now, again, I'm, I'm not a fan of Donald Trump, but but even I was kind of slightly taken aback by that. That people, you know, have that level of trust in um, in in. in someone they identify with you know I mean on the economic point yeah I mean you're, you're right I agree with you both about Charles Marianne and Nick Epistat have written very well on this uh, and this is a phenomenon that this this increasing not just polarization but kind of siloization of America that people don't don't you know I write about this in the book and this is my chapter on mutual trust and the collapse in mutual trust people just don't mix with each other anymore <clears throat> it's kind of interesting you know remember that other book 20 years or so ago by, I think by Robert was it uh, uh, Robert Kaplan or um, Bowling alone, right? Which is this phenomenon of um, Americans, um, you know, who still go to, to to bowling alleys, but were bowling, but were not members of bowling leagues anymore or groups. They were not socializing in the way that you know, classically, De Tocqueville described America naturally coming. Americans as naturally coming together in groups, <clears throat> and that is true. And I'm sorry to say that you know, since either even since Charles Murray's book or since you know that book, Bowling Alone, it's got worse because because of social media. We didn't even really have social media um back in the early 2000s that really came about in the, in the teens and and the way in which people now can choose their own community their own people that they want to, to be with and by the way again they're not bowling alone as it were they they are they're communing or well, they're communing largely digitally but they're communing with people who share exactly their views and walling themselves off from anybody else, and whether it be anybody of a, you know, of an economics, a different economic background, um, you know, different interest, I mean, you know, different political background, different cultural background, but a different ideological background. They are able to kind of, you know, I, the, my, again, I quote in the book, remember the famous Daniel Patrick Moynihan line, which is that, you know, years ago you can choose your own opinions, but you can't choose your own facts. That's exactly not true now. You can absolutely <laughs> choose your own facts. You can choose to completely ignore Whatever fact is inconvenient to you, whether it's economics or foreign policy or what's happening in social um, in, in, in social issues, you can, you can you know, I think the only thing you can't, the, I think the only thing I'm aware of that you can't really ignore are sports scores, right? If you're a, like <laughs> I am a New York Giants fan, you cannot convince yourself, however much you may try and may want to, that the New York Giants won uh, their last game when, when they didn't. But, you know, that that's kind of like everything else is like you can just choose what you want to believe and that of course that is incredibly divisive it's incredibly polarizing and yeah again i'm not I'm, I'm i do end the book on a relatively optimistic note saying partly because we have been here before partly because i can see ways in which this can be overcome i am but i slightly agree with mark i'm not sure about a ronald reagan you know a resurrection but i do think part of the Part of the need here is for leadership, is for genuine national leadership by someone who has real qualities. I think, again, I think one of the other problems, frankly, we've seen in the last 20 years is a poverty of leadership, a real poverty of leadership. If you go back and look at who we had, you know, whether it was – again, you may not like all their politics, but FDR, Harry Truman, Eisenhower – you know, you can take or like, take or leave John F. Kennedy if you like, but LBJ. These were these were enormously Nixon for all his flaws. These were, and then of course Ronald Reagan. These were enormously, you know, enormously not always virtuous, but enormous. They had tremendous political virtues. They had great experience. They had great skills. They had great leadership capability, they had an ability to talk to and represent the country. We really haven't had that for the last 20 years. And I, I do think, I think there is a good chance that someone will emerge because America is good at producing these people. It, to me, you know, looking at where we are today and we have this choice, of this, apparently this choice of the next election, uh, unbelievably between, between Trump and Biden, you think, you know, how, how can a country of 340 million produce that? Well, the flip side of that is it is a country of 340 million people. It has produced great leaders in the past. And I think it will do so again.
0: So how much of this is intentional? Um, so, you know, Ronald Reagan comes into office in 1980, campaigning on the phrase, uh, the f- most frightening words in the English language are, I'm from the government, I'm here to help. And, you know, decades later, Americans agree with him. Um, the Supreme Court's collapse uh, in trust is, is significant. That's as a result of a Intentional campaign on the left to discredit the court because they don't like the, the results that are coming from the court. You have the left with this movement, uh, the critical race theory movement trying to bring down America and convince Americans that we're a systemically racist country and sort of destroy the, the common fabric of trust in our constitution and in our institutions and in our founding. It, on both the left and the right, there seems to have been a, a, Concrete effort to discredit our institutions, and those efforts are succeeding. Is is it fair to say that this is the result of an intentional effort in some ways?
2: Yeah, it's a very good point, and I think that's true. And your point about the the media and the Supreme Court is particularly striking. I mean, just this relentless campaign. You know, that goes right back to Brett Kavanaugh's. No, um, it goes further back than that. Actually, of course, goes back to Clarence Thomas's hearing, or even thirty plus years ago. Yeah, this attempt. But yeah, it is. It is a con- is a conscious attempt, and you're right too. It's true on on the on the right. I think you know some of the things that Donald Trump has said um, have been intended to um, uh, you know create distrust in in institutions, because you know again and again the, the 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 problem. I think the particular problem we have is that we have become so polarized and so divided as a, as, a, as a country and as a society that there's a willingness to. There's a, there's a willingness for people to believe that there's there's a there's a willingness to suspend any skepticism or disbelief or questioning and when the new york times publishes something about clarence thomas or uh, donald trump says that you know uh the media is the enemy of the people or that the election was stolen there's the ground is there for enough people to believe it there just isn't the there isn't you know i mean i i, I, I hesitate to say this because because i think some of the polling contradicts this a little bit but there isn't doesn't seem to be a middle ground right this is that where you know in the past you'd have you always had hyper partisans right people who you know would never have you know would, you know would vote for their party whatever you know yellow dog Democrats, as it were people would vote for for anybody as long as they had a d or an r against their name and it didn't matter what their character was or what their personality was but there was a kind of middle ground which we thought was quite large um Where people could be swayed, they would say, you know, okay, well, you know, I'm not a, you know, I voted for Jimmy Carter in 1976, but country's a mess and a disaster. I'm going to vote for Ronald Reagan in 1980. I'm going to vote for Ronald Reagan in 1980. That middle ground has shrunk, and that middle ground are persuadable people who can actually say, you know, when 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 a leader is is decrying an institution or denigrating an institution, can say, well, actually, you know what, this institution is not. Actually, a terrible institution. Maybe it's done some good things. Maybe it's a, you know it's part of the the constitutional setup of this country, like the Supreme Court. And it's actually very important that we support it. Those people seem to have gone away, and instead we have just these hyper-partisans. But again, I think look, one of the things I talk about in the book a bit in the political section and government is we've had this one of the weird phenomena we've had in the United States in the last thirty years is not just partisanship, but incredibly narrow polarization. Every single election in this country comes, it's like a 50 50 election. This is a, it's a sort of, a, in the history of the country, and indeed in the history, I've looked at this, in the history of almost all Western democracies, it's really weird. We've never had a situation, you never don't have, often have a situation where you have this 50 50 split every time. I, I think the, Uh, I may get these numbers slightly wrong because I don't have them in front of me, but if you look at, I think, like the eight presidential elections before 1992, something, I think, in six of them, the winning candidate won by more than 10 percentage points. You had landslides for George H.W. Bush in in, in 1988, for Reagan in 1984, and to some extent in 1980, for Nixon in 72, for for LBJ in 64. These huge majorities. Since 1992... The largest share of the vote any president, any candidates ever got for president in this country, is is less than fifty-two percent. Barack Obama uh, did it in two thousand eight, about fifty-one point five percent of the vote. You know, George W. Bush barely got just got over fifty percent of the vote in in, two thousand four, and of course lost the popular vote very narrowly in two thousand. So we have we we but we seem to be stuck. We seem to be paralysed in this. Um, in this fifty-fifty situation, and the reason I think that's important is when a, when a party loses an election in a landslide, as the Republicans did in '64 or the Democrats did, you know, in '1984, they're forced to kind of rethink who they are and to say, you know, people have rejected us by an overwhelming amount. We've got to we've got to change. We've got to we've got to we've, we've got to we've got to start learning some lessons from that, and we've got to move back toward, you know, in both those cases, 64 Republicans, 84 Democrats. We've got to move back towards the center somehow to capture more of those votes. When you have these 50-50 elections, you don't really need to do that anymore. It's kind of like, well, we'll just wait. You know, we only need to sort of maximize our turnout a little bit. Things will, you know, we don't need to change. And that's what you've seen. We'll just, you know, it's for the last 30 years, when parties lose, I mean, there was a lot of soul-searching in the Republican Party after the 2012 election, which probably took the party, <laughs> ironically, in completely the wrong direction. But, but um, there isn't this political electoral imperative of for political parties to have leaders who will say, come along and say, we've got things wrong and we need to rethink things and we need to start again. I mean again, twenty again, Trump did that in twenty sixteen in a very radically different way, but that's rather different from the situation I'm talking about. And even then he didn't win, of course, a majority either a majority of the popular vote um and what and only won very narrowly in the electoral college vote. So I think there needs to be some, and I guess where I, I, I sort of side with Mark a little bit, some leader who comes along and actually is able to break this deadlock that we have in a way that actually brings more Americans together and makes those who are, who, who are the losers in that election understand that they have lost and that they really do need A, to accept that they've lost, which again, these days, People don't do. And I say this, you know, of course, Trump, you know, refused to accept the result of the 2020 election result. and I think that was very wrong. But, you know, many Democrats did it in 2000. Obviously, many more, many Democrats did it in 2004. Um, You know, we are all familiar with the famous Stacey Abrams, uh, Georgia election. You know, this this tendency to say, no, 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 I didn't lose. The result was close and I was cheated out of it is, is, is bipartisan. Trump took it further than anyone else has done in 2020, but it's bipartisan. I think we need to break that deadlock. I think we need a candidate who comes along and breaks that political deadlock.
1: Amen. I want to ask you about something though, that, um, and this is my exit question because we kept you for much longer than we promised. But one of the, the things that I think we haven't talked about very much, uh, is the death of optimism in America. So one of the things that really has characterized both uh, both Americans economically, but also the American national character is this hope in the future. It's what makes us different from Europeans. Um, it's, it really is. Uh, it, it, we, we are not fatalists, we are hopeful uh, people who think tomorrow will be a better day. That is no longer really the truth. And while some of that is hype, the reality is the rich have gotten richer at a much faster pace. The, the poor are much more mired in poverty. They have to work much harder to, to buy a house. I mean, my God, to buy a house is, mm. you know I, know, I think we all know people who simply have, you know, two parents working, a child, and cannot afford to buy a house where they live. You know, this doesn't produce optimism. Do you think that is one of the issues that needs to be dealt with? And then the question, of course, would be, how? How? Wow, that's a good Wall Street Journal exit for you.
2: I do. I I agree with you, Danny. And again, I do talk about this in the book, and I think, you know, Another way of thinking about this is what I talked about earlier: inequality and the massive growth of inequality in the country. Again, I'm I'm a capitalist. I firmly believe in capitalism. I firmly believe it's the best system that's ever been created. It's lifted more people out of poverty. But I think right now, American capitalism, I do side with some of those people on on the right who think that American capitalism has kind of gone off the rails a little bit. We have too much concentration of power in the hands of too few companies. Too much um, concentration of power results in massive rewards. Massive rewards for those who've done well and then does tend to leave the rest of the country behind. We've had very little real wage growth. I know there's arguments about this and we can go back and forth about the data. But the but the under but the the, the median wage in America in the last twenty years um, has been pretty stagnant. Median real wage and certainly compared with the way the the the, the compensation of the top one or five percent has dramatically declined. And that you're absolutely right, Danny. And the the optimism has has been you know has been demolished and you can just see this in polls again i constantly return to polling surveys but you know people ask you know is america on the right track that 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 question right track wrong track question is america on the right track or the wrong track has been pretty well negative consistently for more than twenty years i mean it really it, it began around two thousand two two thousand three well, 2000, 2001, obviously you know there was tremendous unity after 911 but it began about 2003 um, you know with uh, with uh, concerns about what was going on in Iraq and and then after and then and then from the mid to from, from the aughts really up until today 20 straight years with a couple of a couple of months of exception large majorities of people saying the country's on the wrong track large majorities of people saying now which is really shocking in American historical terms. Their children will have a worse life than they will. That's 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 a really again that's a you're absolutely right, Danny. That's not an American feature. Everybody always wants and thinks that their children are going to have a better life than they will. Look, I think this requires economic reforms to um, a to make the economy more dynamic. And the other problem is that the U.S. economy has actually. Oh, by the way, you know, you look at the rest of the world right now, and the U.S. looks pretty good compared with the rest of the world in economic terms. China's in a mess. Europe's stagnant, as as it has been. Japan has been stagnant for a long time. But that's not good enough to meet the needs and the hopes and um, and aspirations of the American people. We've had relatively weak productivity growth in this country for 20 years, weak compared to where it was in the 1990s or the 1980s. Uh, We've had, although we have low levels of unemployment, we don't have very significant levels of income growth, as I said. Many people's savings have been depleted dramatically, don't, these people don't have much wealth, American people don't have much wealth so the, we, we've got to we've got to regenerate economic, we've got to do a lot to regenerate economic growth, I do think that's partly the size of the role, the growth of the size of government has been in, enormously important in that and we've got to do some we've got to rein that back, we've got to do something about the debt that we're building up, we've got to do something about the um, the extent of, um, you know, the lack of dynamism about the level of tax that we have, so I'm, I'm in favour of all of those things, I do think however we do need measures to address the, particular level, the, the poverty that we have but I think that will come about mainly through making America more dynamic. I think the big problem in America right now is not actually that capitalism has failed, it's that we don't have enough capitalism, that we don't actually have enough dynamism, we don't have enough, if you look at the numbers of small businesses that have started, startups have collapsed in the last 20 years, it's something else I talk about in the book, that the, the dynamism that we used to have is largely, has been sapped. We need to get back to the kind of dynamism that we did have in the 1980s, that we, America did have certainly in the 1950s, we need to do Things to get back to that to lift the economic performance of the country to make the f- economic distribution fairer and to give more hope to more Americans. And the
0: two institutions that do enjoy majority support uh, are small business and the military that have not suffered that class. uh I, I'm going to rain on Danny's effort to end this on an optimistic note because uh, <laughs> uh, that was I, optimism. Well, <laughs> yeah. you were trying to. You're trying to have low expectations. <laughs> Yes, exactly. So, I mean, you've talked about the economic silos that we're living in now, where you have rising inequality and that's how, how that's contributing to it. It seems like we're increasingly going to be living in political silos as well. That, you know, we've had uh, in, since 2011, about 35 million Americans have moved from state to state, and most of them moving from blue states to red states. And as a result, uh, you've got we're separating into two Americas increasingly. I mean, one of the reasons why you'll never get Rudy Giuliani elected in a, a new Rudy Giuliani elected in New York to clean up the mess in New York is because all the Republicans who would vote for him or moderates who would vote for him have moved to Florida and Texas. Right. And so yeah. we're, we're we're increasingly separating ourselves into a blue America and a red America living in different realities, listening to different news, you know, believing different you know, alternate facts. Is this only going to get worse as we decamp into our tribal camps? And is there any way to fix that?
2: Well, and, and uh, just to rain further on the parade, it's, it's even worse than that, Mark, actually, because it's not, you're absolutely right. All Everything you describe is correct. But it's also not just kind of that people are moving to, you know, blue states are becoming bluer and red states are becoming red. It's actually, you know, communities and, and cities and towns within those states are becoming more uh, m- more concentrated in their political um, affiliation, too. So, you know, I live in New York City. There are, believe it or not, parts of New York City that are actually very Republican, and they're becoming more Republican, uh, uh, Staten Island, and, uh-huh. you know, parts of, um, you know, the, the, the more sort of suburban parts of New York City. Whereas the urban parts of all these cities are becoming more and more Democrat as more, you know, more and more conservatives leave. You're right. So, so we're becoming very, very, very sort of siloized geographically. And, and increasingly only kind of interacting with, you know, people of the same sort of political background. Let me, I'll, I will end on this optimistic note. So, and you make the point about, we just, you meant to make the point about small business and about the importance of community. I think that the what it is true that the two institutions that have seen um, an increase in trust and, and which are still, where majorities of Americans still express trust in is the military. I think that's understandable for all kinds of obvious reasons and small business. And I think if you dig further into that small business um, question, you get a little bit of a hint of where maybe there is a something of a solution, or at least a partial solution here, because it's not just small business. Actually, it's quite interesting. If you ask people, you know, if you ask people, do they trust Congress? Tiny numbers of people say they don't trust Congress. Do they? Do you trust your local congressman? Generally speaking, large majorities do. Do you trust the federal government? No. Do you trust your city government, your local government? I not in places like New York City, I have to say. But but in small 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 towns and cities, generally people people do. Do you trust big business? No. Do you trust small business? Yes. And I think part of the problem here, um, it's only a part of it. I'm not suggesting it's 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 the whole problem, and that therefore solving it will be the whole solution. But part of the problem is this problem of scale and bigness and remoteness that we've got. Yeah, and by the way, you know. Social media technology has d- done that, you know, in spades. I think we have got a, we've got these huge institutions, huge companies, remote government. Um, you know, we, we spend all our lives now on social you know, on on looking at you know televisions, media, sorry, computer screens and iPhone screens and uh, smartphone screens and everything else. These we, we become we become distanced. I think from you know, and I, there's very interesting work on the collapse of you know human contact of social interaction that people have especially among young people you know i think we've all got we've all got kids and um, i've got i've my youngest i've only got one teenager left now she's almost no longer a teenager but i've been shocked and actually disturbed the amount of time in the last 5 or 6 years i realize she spends on her own looking at a computer screen it's or or an iphone screen it's actually terrifying and you're seeing this pathologies social pathologies that have come about as a result of that I think that again to end on an optimistic note I think that this is becoming such a you know unfortunate it's such bad news that it will have to change I think what's happening to young people the kind of social pathologies that are being visited on young people by technology this broader sense of alienation from society from the traditional forms of interaction that we have I think it's going it's gone too far. And I think more and more people are recognising that. Parents are recognising that. Individuals are recognising that in their own lives. And I think there's going to be a pushback. And some people have got I don't know how I can't give you an explanation. I don't think, you know, we're gonna ban smartphones or we're gonna, you know, break up Google or whatever, although maybe we will. But I think that there will there is a broad cultural by the way, interestingly also bipartisan backlash. I've got you know, very liberal, very progressive friends who are as horrified about what's going on in terms of this social disintegration uh, as I am as a conservative. And I think maybe, so again, it's not good news. It's probably going to get worse. But I do think, you know, with the history of these things, tends to suggest things get worse and worse and worse until people just say enough is enough and we've, things have got to change and we've got to turn things around. Well, there's a hopeful note to end on. Also hopeful that you've written this book
0: because uh, the first step in solving a problem is diagnosing it, and you've done it brilliantly. And uh, we encourage everyone to go out and get a copy and read it. Thank and you. We'll link to the Amazon page on our on our sub stack. Thank you You're so very much. Kind.
2: I really enjoyed
1: the conversation. Thanks a ton, Jerry. It's always great to have you.
0: Take, Take care. All right, Danny. so what do you think?
1: Well, you know, the thing that I really do worry about deeply is what I talked about at the end, which is that Americans used to be a hopeful people. You worked hard because you knew that you were delivering a better choice, a better future to your family. You worked hard because you knew that if you scraped enough money together, you would buy a little house or a little apartment. And, you know, eventually you would pass the money earned from selling that on to your kids. And that was a great idea. And that America is evanescing before our eyes.
0: I, I agree with you. And, you know, I question the role of income inequality such as it is in this, because, you know, if it, the, I think the stats are since 1980, the top 1% income has risen 226%, while the middle 60 middle, percent's uh, income has risen 47%. 47% isn't bad. It, it would be a problem if the top was rising and the bottom was going down, or uh, the middle was going down. The problem is not that uh, income inequality like if everybody if if a rich person's income goes up 10 percent and a middle class or poor person's income goes up 10 percent, everybody's gone up 10 percent. But there's more inequality. So inequality is not the issue. The issue is mobility and the issue is opportunity and whether that's disappearing. And I think it is. I think a lot of people feel that we've unleashed this. And part of this is I, I mean, is government. So, you know, the covid pandemic. Led to all these lockdowns, which led to all this government spending, which unleashed inflation, which is unleashed, you know, in response to inflation, dramatic increases in interest rates. Which means nobody can afford a house anymore. But Mark, you know, it's not just—it's
1: not just that nobody can afford a house anymore. It is that what do elites want people to do? Uh, they want them to go to college. You want to go to college? You know, you want to go to a private school college. You're going to spend more than eighty thousand dollars. Most of the people who work in this country don't make $80,000, let alone have the ability to spend it. Wait, let's go further. Housing costs have skyrocketed because the, because the supply is now so small. Housing costs have skyrocketed even in places where people used to be able to afford a house. I'm not talking about Northern Virginia or you know or, or, or Southern Maryland where DC people live in you know two three four four five million dollar houses. We've seen those those changes happening over the last ten years. I'm talking even about you know in in the Heartland where people could spend a hundred thousand hundred and fifty thousand and actually buy something, you could buy yourself an outhouse for $150,000 now, but but not much more. And that purchasing power, you you know, you're right, income inequality has become a trope. But purchasing power is a real thing. And that, by the way, is not something that is different between Northern Virginia and, you know, and, and Central Kansas. You go to the supermarket and you are paying six bucks for organic milk yes, half yes. gallon in central Kansas and in northern Virginia.
0: Yeah. No. So, infl- again, inflation, interest rates, everything. Uh, government intervention is making the American dream less achievable for people uh, across the country you know and if you have to pay seven percent interest rate you're not going to buy a house even if you could afford the down payment uh you know even if it is a smaller house you know seven percent is seven percent or whatever the heck the, the rates are now no one's going to buy a house with those with those interest rates and that's driven by the inflation which is driven by the government spending which is driven by the lies about the pandemic not- then, And then you've got the school closures which have disproportionately affected poor black and brown kids in these districts which are shut down much longer the Lifetime learning—the learning losses will lead to lifetime income losses for these people and put the uh, put the dream out of, further out of reach for them. So you know, I I understand why trust in government has collapsed because the government keeps intervening and the government keeps making doing things uh, that that put the American dream out of reach. And then, oh by the way, we're not allowed to talk about the American dream anymore because the cultural elites have deemed that we are a systemically racist country and that we need to just blow the whole thing up. And we're not teaching. Kids, you know, they, we talk about reading and math scores collapsing in schools. The The Nation's reporter came out and said scores in U.S. history and civics have collapsed. So we're not even teaching our our people how to be good citizens anymore. And so the whole it it just feels in America like nothing works anymore. Nothing works. Everything's going in the wrong direction, and th- that's why we're having this collapse in trust in institutions.
1: Okay, that was a good rant. Um, I I am now going to try not to rant, but to help us close out. Look, I, I, I think the one piece you left out of that, uh, and, uh, and we don't talk about it enough is the $33 trillion in debt. We have Republican and Democrat equal opportunity borrowers. We have racked up and, you know, there were days when people suggested that having a large debt for America was not a bad thing, nothing worth obsessing over because it was just proof positive that other people wanted to lend us money because we were doing good things and they had, a, I had confidence in their returns. Now, the payment on that debt is going to become so burdensome to our children and our grandchildren that you really can't make that argument anymore. And I appreciated Nikki Haley bringing that up. I appreciated her slamming all of the, the previous leaders of our country who have been so cavalier in, in borrowing that money from the world and from our future. But that, that has to be a factor, too. God, there's so much work to do and so few people to do it.
0: And so many podcasts.
1: There's so many podcasts left.
0: So, so we're going to keep tackling these problems until we pod them into into submission. Sure.
1: Yes. <laughs> Good luck with that. Thanks everybody for being here.
0: Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at aei dot org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at dpletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C.